0: Hello, a very warm welcome to you to the Princess Anne Theatre here at 195 Piccadilly. On behalf of the Archive and Learning Teams here at BAFTA, we'd like to thank Anne Sumner and Mitzi's daughter, Antonia Cunliffe-Davis, for joining us this weekend as a part of our 70th birthday celebrations. Professor Anne Sumner is a researcher with a particular interest in public art. She is currently studying the life and work of Mitzi Cunliffe, focusing on the 1950s when Mitzi designed the iconic BAFTA mask and has written texts and given lectures on the subject and curated the exhibition Sculptor Behind the Mask, which was held in 2016 at the Stanley and Audrey Burton Gallery at the University of Leeds. She is former Head of Fine Art at the National Museum of Wales and Director of the Barber Institute of Fine Arts at the University of Birmingham. Antonia Cunliffe-Davis is the eldest child and daughter of Mitzi and Marcus Cunliffe, Antonia trained as an architect and designer, working on many arts projects during her varied career as an interactive exhibitions and architectural designer and writer. Antonia lives and works in Cheltenham. Mitzi's second daughter, Shay Cunliffe, has also forged a career in the creative industries, becoming a prolific costume designer for major Hollywood film productions. And Shay is a member of BAFTA LA and the American Film Academy. We're very pleased that Anne and Antonia are able to share their knowledge and experience with us, to shed light on the craftsmanship and artistry of Mitzi's practice, and to further illuminate one of BAFTA's perennial heritage stories, as the Mask Award continues to be a significant and celebrated part of our identity, and a distinguished symbol of excellence in the world of film, games, and television. If you haven't already, please do take time after the talk to explore the exhibition out in the members bar and up the stairs, where you can see the masks themselves, and where there's a fantastic live guides who can talk to you more about them and the other works on display. And all that's left is to hand over to Anne. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hope
1: you enjoy. Well, Helen, thank you very much for that warm welcome. Um, we are absolutely delighted to be here at Bath today to have this opportunity to share our knowledge and recent research on Mitzi Cunliffe in an institution which celebrates her so widely. So Mitzi Cunliffe was an American sculptor-designer. She was born Mitzi Solomon in New York, and she arrived here in Britain in 1949. She was not only a sculptor, but she was also a designer of textiles, ceramics, and glass. And she wrote very widely on many topics, including the relationship of architecture and sculpture. And she also appeared regularly on television in the 1950s and 60s, and went on to be a well-known lecturer as well. Now, the reason that I became involved in Mitzi Cunliffe is because I was commissioned to do some research and a very important piece of sculpture at the University of Leeds. This is the man-made fibre sculpture, which was commissioned in 1954 and was eventually finished in 1956. And while I was doing this research, I was looking in the archives, and what, of course, I found was a great deal of correspondence and a very particular image, the image of Mitzi Cunliffe with uh, a drawing of the BAFTA mask and it became clear to me that at the time she was actually working on the Leeds Commission, she was also working simultaneously on this very important mask. And that mask was commissioned by the Guild of Television Producers and Directors in late 1955, when actually Mitzi Kanliff was very, very irritated and frustrated by the fact that things were a little slow with the Leeds Commission and she wasn't able to really get on with it. So here we have one of the photographs that I uncovered amongst all the archive material and letters in the University of Leeds Stanley and Audrey Burton Gallery files and it shows Mitzi Cunliffe in the autumn of 1955 with those initial plans and drawings that she made for the trophy and I assumed that everybody would be well aware of these and that BAFTA would have all sorts of extra information as well and so when I got in touch with Louise here at BAFTA I was amazed that they weren't actually aware of this photograph so it's been great to work together and to build a larger and more informative picture of this particular commission. This was always referred to as the Jason Trophy by Mitzi Cunliffe and she called it that because she was pregnant with her third child, Jason, when she created it. The classical mask with one eye closed and one eye open is designed to swivel to reveal the reverse with an electron symbol and a screen around one eye linking the trophy to dramatic production and television technology. Now, Cunliffe was herself a regular on television arts shows such as Woman's Hour and a panellist on Ask Me Another, which was chaired by Ned Sherrin, and Something to Read, as well as programmes that we aren't so familiar with nowadays called Let's Imagine and A Word in Edgeways, which were both chaired by Brian Redhead. So that's how she came into contact with being commissioned to create this particular image. So what we tried to do in Leeds was to hold an exhibition which would really show the breadth of her work. This exhibition was held in the Stanley and Audrey Burton Gallery in 2016, and it was the first exhibition of Mitzi Cunliffe's sculpture of any kind since 1967. And we'll talk a little bit more with Antonia later about Mitzi's legacy and about why it is that her name, for instance, is not as familiar as, say, that of Barbara Hepworth, because she certainly did a achieve a great deal in her career and she was one of those selected for the Festival of Britain in 1951 shortly after her arrival here. So let's look at Mitzi and her career a little bit before she actually came here to Britain. This is a beautiful photograph of her taken by her friend Arnold Newman, and we've been able to trace back to his sitter books and actually firmly identify him as the photographer of this really wonderful image. She was born Mitzi Solomon in 1918 in New York, and she was the daughter of a glass manufacturer, Abraham Solomon, who encouraged her artistic talents. She attended the Art Students League of New York before studying fine art and figurative sculpture under Oranzio Baltarelli at Columbia University, who died in 1963. And she was there from 1935 to 1940. She then sought inspiration studying at the Academia Colosse in Paris for a year. She returned to New York and began to establish her career as a sculptor with solo exhibitions in 1944 and 1948 in New York. Her work was shown across America, from museums such as Syracuse Museum of Fine Arts to the Brooks Memorial Art Gallery in. Memphis. She also won the George B. Winder Memorial Gold Medal from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art in 1949. So she was very clearly a young sculptor who was going places and establishing herself in America. This fine photograph really concentrates on Mitzi's very beautiful hands and we'll see that hands were an important part of her artistic motifs later on in her career. She had actually produced not only uh, sculptures for exhibitions, but one really major public art sculpture where she was commissioned by a Jewish synagogue in Indiana to produce a large relief root and branch. So when she came to actually creating art sculpture in Leeds, she was certainly experienced in this field. Cunliffe was aware of developments in British sculpture, not least because she had admired Henry Moore's art, and she met him when he launched his successful international career with his first solo exhibition at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, in 1946. This was the first actual show in America dedicated to one British contemporary figure. And we know that she met with him and that this was a, a very important meeting. He influenced her, and he signed this photograph for her in December 1946, which she maintained in her studio until the end of her life. So she very much treasured this. Now, when she arrived in 1949, she very quickly established herself in Britain. She took the most of the opportunities that there were. The Festival of Britain in 1951 transformed the way people viewed their post-war nation. It was a huge opportunity for visitors to the South Bank to see firsthand cutting-edge design and architecture in this country. The Arts Council commissioned a number of sculptors, Robert Adams, Reg Butler, Lynn Chadwick, Frank Dobson, Jacob Epstein, Barbara Hepworth, Henry Moore and Eduardo Palozzi and Mitzi Cunliffe. Cunliffe therefore swiftly established herself in exactly the right circles to create and forge a career here. While Henry Moore's reclining figure was given prime location above the main entrance, it's not so well known that Mitzi Cundiff's sculpture was actually very prominently displayed over the Waterloo Gate, where at least half of people entered as well. And it's extraordinary that while many of the sculptures from the exhibition uh, have been maintained and are known about, that unfortunately this eight foot high concrete sculpture is sadly now lost. So this is another picture of it. She is shown here with her husband Marcus Cunliffe and one thing that one thinks about Mitzi's career is why did she in 1949 make that decision to actually come here and live in Britain when she was doing so well in New York and that's because she met this dashing young English academic. She was swept off her feet fell madly in love and she left New York and she went with him to live in Manchester first of all in a small flat and then to a semi-detached house in Didsbury and it was there that Mitzi set up her studio transforming their garage into a sculpture studio. So, as I say, her inclusion in the Festival of Britain was very important for her career. 8.5 million people visited the Festival of Britain, many of whom would have been very familiar with this work. She worked closely with Sir Hugh Casson during the exhibition. He was the Director of Architecture and he was extremely supportive of her career. She was also commissioned to produce items for the famous regatta restaurant by Samisha Black. These are the push and pull handles on the glass door and also some really rather amazing and innovative lighting for the restaurant as well. She followed up after the Festival of Britain by having her, actually her one and only, solo show in London this was in the October after the Spring Festival of Britain and Sir Hugh Casson wrote the introduction and he helped her and introduced her to a number of important contacts and she actually had the maquettes for Root Bodied Forth in that exhibition and of course that maquette does still survive and is now in the Henry Moore Institute on loan to Leeds Museums and Galleries. So she worked for universities and she also, back in Manchester, worked for schools. This is an example of a sculpture that she was commissioned for Manchester High School for Girls. It was entitled Threshold and it celebrated the school survival of the Second World War. And You can see it. Here she is installing it, and here are the pupils. In our research, Antonia and I found that actually, while the newspapers described the pupils as being very enthusiastic and excited about going along to see it opened on a cold day in Manchester, there were one or two pupils who recorded that they were actually quite chilly and didn't really understand what was quite going on. In the 1950s, she was a very prolific as a sculptor, but she also worked in other areas such as textile design. This is a wonderful textile fabric that she did for David Whitehead Fabrics, and it was, of course, commissioned for the celebrations of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. It's this very beautiful jaunty lion and unicorn design and that fabric has recently most generously been donated by Antonia to the University of Leeds International Textile Centre. Now, one of her most ambitious commissions was a figurative bas release made out of 65 separate panels of Westmoreland green stone, which was commissioned by Manchester City Council, and it was for a pumping house at Heaton Park. And on the side of it was to be depicted the story of how water was brought from a new reservoir in the Lake District in Horsewater down to Manchester. And here you have her showing how the water was transformed and taken into the city of Manchester from a big new reservoir. You can see in these images, she's working in her garage studio. You can see she's got drawings absolutely everywhere to scale drawings. It was at the time very much celebrated. We can see here, the finished work and the building is still intact and indeed a few years ago it was listed and it is the first of Mitzi Cunliffe's works to be listed in situ and we can see her and her family here celebrating on the opening day, which was the 21st of June, 1955. And it was opened by the Earl of Derby. And it's all sorts of wonderful letters and descriptions of that day. And they were all sent to somebody called Professor J.B. Speakman at the University of Leeds. And really Mitzi Cunliffe was doing this to try and jog Speakman on because he'd commissioned her first of all, started to talk to her in 1954, and she was really wanting him to commit to the major sculpture that she was going to do for Leeds. So all of this comes from the Leeds archive. It's interesting that some years later, when she starts to look at her career and produce a catalogue of what she had done, she produces a sculpture for architecture, which is a publication that she produced, and she compares her ability to work on a very large scale already recognising the importance of the BAFTA mask and her ability to work on a small scale. Now, as I say, the sculpture in Liverpool is now rather hidden away around the back of the building. The sculpture in Leeds is actually right at the top of the building, very high up. And I think that's one reason that it has been somewhat overlooked because you literally were not drawn up to the building to look at the top of it. But Cunliffe really understood the significance of this particular sculpture. She knew it was going to be unveiled by the Duke of Edinburgh and the Princess Royal. She knew that it was very closely linked in with the Synthetic Fibres Revolution, major fundraising with the Courtold Company, which the University of Leeds had instituted. So she was very keen indeed to celebrate this commission. And as part of the 60th anniversary of the sculpture last year, we actually had it conserved because it had got really very discoloured and it looks absolutely wonderful, as you can see now. So while she was trying to get some clarification from Leeds about what exactly they wanted her to do and signing the contracts, she then was starting to pursue them for the Portland Stone because she knew the scale of work that this was would mean that she was going to have to spend some considerable time on it. She also felt that she should take other commissions as well. And in the late summer of 1955, while still waiting for Leeds to send through the Portland Stone, she was approached by Andrew Miller-Jones, founder of the Guild of Television Producers and Directors. And she was asked to produce a trophy award for these new annual presentations. One had taken place already. And she'd, of course, come into contact with him through her work on television. Cunliffe produced this classical theatrical tragicomic mask, as we have heard, and it was handed out at the second award ceremony held on the 10th of October, 1955 at the Savoy Hotel. Her mask designs have been cast in bronze and gilded. She was really interested that this opportunity came along and she did not want in any way to pass on it, but she wanted to make sure that she told the University of Leeds every detail about it, so that they understood that she had other options in life and she wasn't just sitting around waiting for their stone to arrive. She wrote to Professor Speakman on the 12th of October complaining bitterly that she was still awaiting for the Portland stone to arrive, and if they didn't send it quickly she wouldn't be able to finish the commission on time. She ended the letter by saying, I'm enclosing some photographs of the tiny seven inch-high trophy I designed for the Guild of Television Producers and Directors, six bronze casts of which were awarded on the 10th of October. The picture of me is included to show you the inside-outside view of the mask, plus preliminary drawings on the walls, not to be published in any circumstances. So I'm afraid, Nancy, we have made it public now. She describes it as her Jason Trophy, as I said, and she enclosed two photographs of the original plaster and obviously the first mould as well. Uh, at the time, she thought about this as really rather a small commission, but she started very quickly to see the significance of this work and recently discovered photographs in her studio show that she had these photographs of at least one of those masks that was we don't know for certain whether she went to that Savoy Hotel, that second presentation of her of the awards and the first to use her trophy, but we do know that she had this image of the one that was actually given to Virginia McKenna for the Best Actress Award for Juliet in Romeo and Juliet playing opposite Tony Britton in a Sunday night theatre TV series in October 1955. We know that Somebody like McKenna was very established at the time. She's particularly well-known, of course, for her Born Free, Joy Adamson uh, role. But in 1956, she was renowned for her performance in a town like Alice, and she was very much a, a household figure. So Mitzi would have obviously been very excited about this. It's worth thinking about the medium of television at that time and noting that in the 1950s, there were only 14,000 television sets in the whole of the Greater London area. So it wasn't the same kind of force that we think about today. And in fact, by proportion, very many more people were watching films across the country. So there was an all-time high in the mid-1950s of over 1,70,0 people watching films each year on 4,710 cinemas. So in 1958, the Guild merged with the British Film Academy, which had presented award trophies actually by that old friend of hers, Henry Moore, a reclining figure which was used from 1948, and they became the Society of Film and Television Arts. That then became the British Academy of Film and Television Arts adopting Cunliffe's trophy. And in 1976, at the Royal opening of its new premises here on Piccadilly, the first BAFTA mask cast in bronze was presented to Charles Chaplin. Cunliffe's distinct design is now, of course, a symbol that's recognized worldwide. Now, when we look at the Leeds sculpture and the BAFTA mask, they seem very different in many ways. But I think it's worth noting that when Mitzi Cumliffe was first commissioned to create this sculpture in Leeds, she was very keen indeed that the actual web, which reflected the important textile heritage of the Yorkshire area, should actually be gilded. And you can see her drawing here wanting it to be gilded so that it could really shine out at the top of the building. But I'm afraid she had an enormous row with Dr Lodge, the architect, and in the end, she took this down to London and showed him exactly how it would work. But I'm afraid he wasn't willing at all. The university actually agreed to it, but he was not willing to have gilding on that large piece of sculpture. And indeed, he claimed that it might blind people if Sun went onto the gilding and they were looking up at it, unfortunately, at the same time. The stone eventually arrived in Mitzi's studio in January and she had to create the sculpture by the 25th of June. So she had to work pretty much full-time once the stone arrived. And the stone was very carefully worked, as you can see in her studio, We have all the details which were sent constantly by her to Professor Speakman so that he could see how progress was being made. And what she did do was introduce a pneumatic drill which enabled her to work much more quickly on the sculpture. Unfortunately, what it did do in later life was contribute to very severe arthritis which she then developed in her hands and arms. And it also may have affected her hearing because as you can see she's not wearing any muffs there. And you can see at the top here as well, here are her children, Antonia and her sister, Shay, who we'll be hearing about in a moment. We can see that Mitzi was giving interviews to the local press, that's actually in the Manchester Guardian, about how to balance childcare and being a working mother. So she was very much ahead of her time. She was also really aware of the importance of the day in June when she was going to be, 25th of June, when she was going to be meeting the Duke of Edinburgh. She designed her own dress and you can see here she is in front of one of her many large scale drawings. And you can also see what an amazing figure she cuts amongst all these academics at the university. She got on very well with Professor Speakman here. And this is Dr. Lodge, who, as I said, the architect she didn't get on very well with at all. The final sculpture, as I say, has been conserved for our project. And there's now a sculpture actually on the pavement as well, a contemporary response by Sue Lorty, which helps draw your attention to the sculpture and a new trail as well. And this was all opened by the Earl and Countess of Harwood, the granddaughter of the... Princess Royal so I think Mitzi would have been amazed after being introduced to royalty to know that some years later the Earl of Harwood here was presented with a BAFTA trophy for his work as the producer of the Inspector Morse series. Moving on to her incredible talents at the same time as she was doing our sculpture in Leeds and creating the BAFTA award here she was also designing this Foliage design for a scarf with David Whitehead and also these sun and moon themes, one for David Whitehead and one for Liberties which has come to light recently and we're hoping that there are many more textiles which perhaps haven't necessarily been identified as being by her. And then she, as I say, multitasking at this very same period as well, just a year later, she was also working for Pilkington's Royal Lancastrian Pottery and producing this really amazing, incredibly beautiful bowls, which are now very collectible indeed. So she was a very, very talented designer as well as a sculptor. Now one of her absolute favorite pieces was her War of the Roses screen, which was designed for the Red Rose restaurant in Lewis's department store in Liverpool which was built in 1947. And this is interesting because it's probably one of the best-known pieces by Mitzi Cunliffe during her lifetime. Many, many people liked and admired it in that particular shopping centre. And what we see here is she was a very practical sculptor. You can see her here coming down to the foundry in the potteries area. This is T.M. Burkett, Billington & Newton. And this is actually a photograph which was come down in the family of Harold Wright who was one of the workers on the screen and she came to see how progress was going and she posed with them all and then signed the photograph for them. By the mid-1960s Cunliffe was suffering from increasing stiffness in her hands and her neck caused by arthritis and she was experiencing hearing problems as well her last major commission was for a portland stone panel on a scottish theme for the scottish life house in london which was completed in 1970 but it was a huge effort for her to do this even though she wore special gloves and big muffs for her ears this is obviously a studio portrait but she's still using that pneumatic drill which was incredible for the vibration that it caused her and basically at the end of finishing this piece the building has now been destroyed but the were saved, her doctors did advise her to stop sculpting altogether. So by the 1970s, she was not actually able to work purely on sculpture. So she redesigned her career and she started to look at fibreglass commissions for universities in particular, moulded cladding, which went on the outside of buildings with a basic design that was repeated. And you can see examples of it here and here behind her, much easier for her to produce. And she had an exhibition called Sculpture by the Yard, which opened here in London at the American Embassy and then toured around to many of the universities, including Leeds, in 1967. And she actually received... Her missions from Dublin to Southampton, very often for university halls of residence. There was a very famous piece, Cosmos II, at the University of Sunderland, and not all her designs, sadly, have been as favoured and uh, iconic as the BAFTA mask because the University of Sunderland knocked down the building that her Cosmos 2 was attached to and demolished it as well and that's only in 2008 so not all that long ago and we are concerned about a work in Manchester at the moment as well which we hope we can be reassured is going to be taken off a building and looked after if that building is demolished. Now, in her mid-50s, Cunliffe turned to teaching, first at Thames Polytechnic, now the South Bank University, and then she taught in New York, Philadelphia, and across America. After she and Marcus, her husband, divorced, she relocated back to her native New York. And you can see her here in her flat in the central image here with her grandson, Sebastian, in her New York apartment in 1982. And do note that behind her, she's framed and displayed and BAFTA mask awards so she was very much aware of the importance of that iconic symbol as well as this actually which is her first capital very first work that was publicly exhibited in her first exhibition in 1944. Now she came back to Britain and was very much cared for in her later life by her daughter here and attended a number of BAFTA ceremonies. She was actually awarded the BAFTA Special Award. And we can see in this picture here, her being awarded that from Richard Price and Johnny Goodman on the 29th of November, 1992 at the Royal Albert Hall. Now sadly by the time that Mitzi was given her award she was actually suffering from Alzheimer's disease and she returned to Britain to be looked after by her daughter and her son-in-law in in Oxford and we'll hear a little bit more in our discussion about how Mitzi's illnesses her Her problems with arthritis, which stopped her from sculpting, uh, her hearing and then developing Alzheimer's, might have impacted on her long-term legacy and the fact that her name perhaps is not as well known as other artists who lived longer and were able to work longer in their careers. And I wanted just to look here at how Mitzi's design has endured, how it has been reproduced in small or in large scale, and really just to think of the brilliance of that actual image. Televising the awards also made a huge difference to the spread of the fame of the image. And here we can see the image being presented again at this year's awards. So I'd like really now to talk to Antonia Cunliffe-Davis and have a discussion with her about her memories of her mother and her mother's career. So Antonia is going to join me now up on the stage. Antonia that was a strange experience I should imagine for you sitting there thinking about your mother and your mother's career and I know that you were only a very young child when you were living in Manchester and living in Didsbury and your mother was creating the mask and the lead sculpture but can you tell us a little bit about what you remember if anything we saw you in the studio in those wonderfully posed photographs what do you remember well, of that first time? of
2: all before I get on to this I'd like to thank you for such a splendid researched, interesting lecture. Thank you. My family very much appreciate this. My sister from afar in LA sent me a message at dawn saying, thank you so much. And we really appreciate everything you've done. (laughs) To go back to this, Anne and I worked together for about two and a half years to lead to the fruition of the Leeds events and celebration. And she asked me this question before. I was very young, and I was concerned with playing with my dolls and my sister, and I really don't remember. It was only when I was older, teenager, or so on, that about what she did. I don't think most people are interested in what their parents are doing. A- Anne then said she'd found this newspaper clipping that we saw about us in the studio and the discipline and how our life was led, and it didn't correlate completely with what I recalled, of my lifestyle as a small child at home. So I looked in the family albums and we uncovered this picture of Shay and I in matching dresses. She liked to dress us up in same little clothes, but one, her head's shorter. Shea hated this and has become a costume designer and used to swap round the limited, say, ten dresses. I think there are a few people um, who might have done that. I've got no, two daughters well, in the audience who might... This <laughs> might ring a bell, I'm but basically Shay would rotate. Instead of, for all the... PR-type photographs, and there were always professional photographers, we'd have the same clothes on. As you saw from the unveiling of the large carving in Manchester, we had to have the same frocks on, but she would wear a different one on a different day, and then established great style, as her friends here can attest, and my family. When I talked to my husband about this question a few days ago, my parents very much had their professional workspaces. We had a suburban house on a cul-de-sac in a nice leafy street in Manchester. And my mother's studio was the garage we'd seen, which was adjacent to the house in the garden. And I think she must have done a nine-to-five in that go in there, close the door, no children to be disturbed, work. When I later researched myself, I couldn't believe, especially with three small children, how she did all of this work and I think you've seen from correspondence that she really was working incredibly hard yes. and probably into the evenings. But I think we did have a lot of childcare. We had au pairs. We had people washing our hair and putting us to bed, cooking us our fish fingers. My father read us our bedtime stories. He took us to school in the car. She wasn't doing too much with us. But she I feel came. she was doing a 12-hour day. No, I think so. to achieve all these fabulous things which really endure and look splendid even now, they don't look dated. They look in beautiful and modern, and the fact that we've got this beautiful thing from the mid-50s sitting here that has such currency. So that was their space. And then in our house, my father was in the attic, and they did an early conversion, so he had his loft flat looking over the garden, and there was a pull-up metal ladder, but he always would pull it up, and that was like, don't talk to parents, don't disturb them, they're getting on with their work. So I think she told me, basically, the most important thing in her life was first... I think her relationship with my father, second, her work, and third, the children. But I, I'm really proud, when I see this afresh, that to have a parent that produced this. And I think also,
1: at that time, it is... Um, extraordinary. Extraordinary to be able to do that, because it was still difficult No mothers of my school
2: friends afford. worked or did anything. And my mother was eccentric, but I, didn't, I don't think we understood her eccentricity in terms of originality. And when you look at things like those ceramics that I'm lucky to own um, from the 50s, they're so beautiful and modern that I think she was so ahead of her time. I think she was also very interesting
1: in the way that she... You talk about the images and you don't necessarily remember being in the studio when you were young. And those were really, I think, probably constructed with the oh, yes. photographer Oh, yeah, PR, coming in. huge. She was fantastic. She'd have been great on Facebook. She'd been great with social <laughs> media. She really understood. No, but when
2: I look at these, I think probably the ones of her in a sort of a, you know, a round-neck jumper with a corduroy skirt and probably work, like big shoes and tights in this freezing garage in Manchester in the winter working with probably a very smelly heater in there that was probably what she was working, covered in dust. But all the glamour was like full makeup, full jewellery, full clothes, high heels. I think to look at the the pictures, but I think it was very controlled public relations at a time where people weren't doing this. I'm sure there aren't pictures of Barbara Hepworth looking like this. No, I don't. I mean, she always looks so
1: glamorous in the studio as well, doesn't she? She looks absolutely beautifully presented, beautifully presented on the great occasions as well. Now, I just touched on this decision that she made to come to Britain in post-war Britain, which might seem a very strange decision in some ways because actually she was clearly having some good excellent commissions and good opportunities in America. So tell us a little bit about your parents, how you think they met, and indeed who your father was, actually, because he was also very interesting. You've hinted at that, his studio. My
2: father was five years younger than my mother, and even that, to have a relationship at this time, she got married, I think, at nearly 30, which was very unusual. You were left on the shelf at 25 if you were not married at that vintage. And he was younger, very dashing, had been an army officer at Oxford, scholar, military historian, got a Commonwealth Fellowship to go to Yale, had a girlfriend in England who stupidly refused to go with him, so she lost him. I think from my mother's accounts, which were probably not accurate, but whatever version we were hearing, she had loads of boyfriends, lots of married men, didn't want to get married, didn't want to have children, was having exhibitions. I mean, incredibly modern for the 1940s, but she lived at home, Her parents paid for her to have a studio where she probably had liaison, which I heard about when I was older, but was not allowed to have her own apartment. So it was (laughs) very controlled. And she went to an opening, and as they describe it, and my father came along, and there was a coup de foudre. So they got married quickly, very romantically. And my father had a lectureship at Manchester University, and she just left. with him to go back to post-war Britain, to go to the provinces from New York. But I would say, as Anne's very well pointed out, what was very fortunate was to suddenly hook into the Festival of Britain, which was the event, and to be included in that and then exhibitions. The regeneration of the country
1: meant that public art was actually an area that people were thinking about a great deal, and in many respects, I think she thought, that actually it hadn't been that detrimental to her career. She'd had incredible opportunities No, I think here. when
2: I was older, when I think when she was starting to get ill, the sad thing was when I started doing my own researches, I launched a prize in her name at the Ruskin at Oxford for a second-year sculptor, which ran for 14 years from '93 to just after her death, 2007. She was able to come to the exhibition I put on with Brian Kapling and Stephen Farbing, who are now Royal Academicians, And we had fun doing that. I got her all dressed up. I had a dress made out of ecat silk I'd bought in Uzbekistan. And she was like Cinderella going to the ball from the nursing home, dressed like this, and then had her hair done, went away. But this this is captured on film. I had the University Film and Television record this. And there's now, we had it digitized. So Anne has a copy of this, so it lives on. So we talk about your father and just yes, so um, he was an
1: important historian yes.
2: as well. American um... But she did tell me, yes, just to recall this, she told me probably when I was in my twenties, with looking back on her own life and having had to stop because of health problems doing the sculpture, which she loved, that probably leaving New York then when she was doing figurative work at a time where abstract expressionism was coming in and big colour field type. Rothko type painting that she was sort of out of sync with the times so to go to England then to have those opportunities particularly in the decade you've been studying the 50s was wonderful and she had a career and she ran with it in a smaller pond actually was was a good thing so I think that was her analysis Um, Mm. luckily I retained this one of the things we do look
1: at at when we're looking at um, Uh, women's careers at this time is a simple thing like changing your name. So she actually has a whole body of work in America but she's known as Mitzi Solomon. And many people don't make that connection with the fact that she's actually the same individual and had a completely different career in Britain. And also the fact that she did, to a certain extent, follow your father around. She did go back to America. She did go down to Sussex when he got a, a job there. So again, she is a woman of her time. In many respects, she's pioneering. She's doing fantastic things in her garage that nobody else was doing in your road. But in other ways, she was actually following her husband. She was taking those career breaks, which. She needed to do in order to support his career. So really remarkable that she was able to produce this extraordinary body of work. Now the other thing we've touched on as well as to why her legacy is not so great, why we haven't all heard of Mitzi Cunliffe, and why she's so defined by this one incredible image, and it was very much BAFTA who continued to mention her name every year, which gave that enduring legacy to her work, is really her health, and the fact that most artists sculptors designers were not having to give up and to not be able to practice really by their 50s so they're able to work right on into look at somebody like David Hockney completely reinventing themselves carrying on thinking about their legacy a lot in later life and Mitzi obviously because of her arthritis really wasn't able to do this so what are your kind of memories of how your mother coped with not being able to well
2: she was very proud and very pragmatic she really, I recall, as you mentioned, that she was told you, if you carve any more, even hammer and chisel, a tiny scale thing, let alone these electric drills, you're going to lose the use of your arms and your hands, so you're not going to be able to draw or make anything. So this was pretty terrifying, and I think then she segued over to the sculpture by the yard so she could do small things, but in effect, the carving went, and I think she also had been very much figurative artist. She admired Baudel and Baroque, if you see the textiles, very Baroque things. And I think she then starts doing more abstract things that probably weren't as successful, but they were more of the zeitgeist of the time, I think, for for that. But then it was more like dust yourself down and get on with things. Mm -hmm. And then the lecturing, but we did discover, you and I, along the road in the last few years, tons of writing about architecture, about public sculpture. So she'd actually wanted to have this sort of journalistic career. And she tried to write a book. I think then again it was a function of, if I can't be that, what can I be? Or what's it called now, portfolio career, make yourself something else, to be a, a theorist. And she'd been teaching architecture and art students in Thames Polytechnic. And she then got a manuscript, got it commissioned by, I think it's Abrams, New York. Well, it was some major art publisher comparable to Thames and Hudson. And then it was cancelled. You know, someone left. The commissioning editor cleared off, and that was the end of that. So I think she was incredibly disappointed. Uh, My father departing for a young, beautiful woman, very embarrassed to be divorced. A divorce card was sent out, which we cringed that and felt we all look miserable in this photograph and I think it but this is modern I mean at the time we thought this is ghastly my parents didn't want us to speak to each other but I think my mother soldiered on with all her new things but the health problems got so bad she had to eventually leave her job at Thames Polytechnic she was very engaged in London with all sorts of things at the Architectural Association writing contributing to things so I I think she really had going off on different tangents, opinions about planning, graffiti. As she
1: got older, and there's that lovely picture of her in the New York apartment with the BAFTA
2: awards. Oh, this all. was slightly like the Hollywood film. What is it called? The Sunset Boulevard. She certainly wanted to... She had a lot of paintings by a Northern artist called Nicholson and she removed them from the walls and basically made a, a studio, but with all of the sculptures of her work, photographs, and I think it made her, she was almost going through a reflection on her life and her work. So at what point did you start to realise that actually she had Alzheimer's? For me personally, I w- we have a French summer home and I visited her. When she'd gone to New York then and would come back, I would go and have a holiday there. And I remember having a conversation late at night, making a very nice meal and cleaning up. And I'd met, discussed something about a plan or where she was, what she was going to do. And The next day, I said, well, further to what we were talking about, what do you think? And she said she looked at me completely blank. I don't remember anything about this, or basically, I never said that. So I think we were noticing. She turned up also at my house in England um, to visit my young children, and it was more like, oh, I have no um, thyroid medicine. I have no money to go to France. I don't have... So she set out also for France once, with my brother taking her to the airport, to have no passport. So I mean, there was little terrible things happening. But that, in a way, did also. Happen. We were very frightened of this, though. One of Shay's very dear friends is here, and I think it was very. We were very intimidated. How do you deal with someone of this pride and talents who is sort of losing it? I remember one phone call prior to really diagnosis, where she rang me and said, "Oh, I was invited out of New York. I went out, and I got to the building. I couldn't remember." the address, where I was going, who I was going to see. And so I had to get back go home. About oh, but she also home. said she went to the GP and they did test, they did confirm this, but she didn't want to hear this. And she also said, I don't want to be, you know, if I'm losing my marbles, she used that phrase, a very English type one. <laughs> I don't want someone being told about this. So we were tiptoeing around and my sister and brother had to take her In New York to have tests, but to have someone where it's these multi-memory things, where it's like here's a banana and a this this or calculate or who's who's the president, who's the queen, what year is it, what month? We had to go through this. Um, I
1: think also that means that towards the end of a career, perhaps you're not planning the legacy for your career in that sense. Oh no, no,
2: it was it basically. I used to call it dropping the reins, as if you were in charge and you were sitting there riding, and then suddenly you lose the plot the solution had to be where is she going to live and what she's going to do, and between us. So I was the oldest child. They thought My sister and brother thought I'd be the perfect person to look after her and run things, but I did find she came to visit, and I found a nursing home in Oxford near our house, and the very lucky thing is that we were able to have the exhibition at the Ruskin and then start the prize and to be involved. And I, I would say at that junction, that was where... There was a wonderful director here called Tony Byrne, and he was very fond of her and all her stylishness and eccentricity. He was a really good friend, but he just went out to bat and decided, like Cinderella, we'll go to the ball. So the first year she was in her nursing home down the road from me, I got her dressed up in that gold jacket and the, the silk outfit which she'd had made and did her hair, probably chose the jewellery, put the lippy on. We had a chauffeur-driven car. she's
1: still an incredibly attractive woman, isn't she? She looks amazing. No, this was,
2: I think, thank God, at that point, she understood adequately, you know, and loved the attention. So a chauffeur arrived. It was like our coach. We were conveyed to the Albert Hall. We went in. Everyone toasted her. We gave her this silver award, and um, then waited till the end of the evening, and... Obviously, there's all the photographs to show these were all the the people that ran the organisation. But to go home at midnight, back to the nursing home, take off the clothes, probably put her to bed and go away. But we also got invited to the big real event uh, to go to a top table at the Grosvenor Hotel and that was wonderful there were chocolate, um very expensively constructed chocolate masks of about the size of the actual thing that probably cost what 50 pounds a head on the table no this was obviously yes so shall
1: we just throw open now and just see if there's any of you would like to ask us any questions at all any questions for Antonia or for myself about Mitzi Cunliffe that you'd like to ask before we close things up.
2: Hi there, good afternoon. Thank you so much for a lovely talk, really illuminating. Uh, my question is for you, uh, Is for, uh, did your mother by any chance share how her
1: ideas came about? Were there dreams? Were there insights? I see some I would beautiful that we themes. we knew
2: this? That's a lovely <laughs> question. No, I absolutely don't know. Yes. I feel, feel she didn't write things down. Her method, if you saw a lot of those photographs that Anne's used, actually I got from archives that I inherited in disarray and Anne has ordered but she drew things I think she always said she didn't draw you know it wasn't like oh I'm sitting in a field drawing a tree that wasn't her style it was more like get a commission there's a brief start brainstorming but visually, graphically, you know, draw something. She had a great style of the drawings. Very fluid Yeah, drawing, and also amazing. maybe love felt tips, which you can't rub out. It wasn't like <laughs> pencil. She got me on drawing. It was, it was more like the mark, and it didn't matter. It wasn't like neatly doing something. But those drawings were just probably on layout paper, generate lots of drawings, overlay them, cut and paste them, stick them in, build them up, and then move to either scene. She used to work in clay, scaled up something, and then she loved making things 3D on wire mesh with plaster. She said she loved building up a plaster. There are some sculptures here that we obviously wanted to keep the, the emphasis, and she said she loved carving with that after the onerous learning the classical sculpture, chipping away to use the power tool. She said it was like carving through butter. You have these huge slabs of stone, Now it wrecked her health, and I don't doubt it contributed to, she had eye problems, she had retinal problems, she had hearing problems, arthritis and probably mental, uh, neurological problems. But I think she said the joy of, she said, I think a curve and I just go whiz. And men who um, do road works are crippled by this. It's really, and I don't think she had goggles or earmuffs or anything.
1: No, I'm afraid I think it was long before some of the health and safety things we do today. <laughs> Well, I'd just like to take this opportunity to really thank all of our colleagues here at BAFTA, to thank Helen and Nia. They've been extremely generous in their time and helping us organise this. And the splendid Splendid room that we are in today. I last gave this lecture, I have to say, in a rather chilly hall on a university campus. And when we came in here, we were just absolutely thrilled, weren't we, Antonio? We thought it was absolutely wonderful and great to have the the scale of the mask. And just to remind ourselves how incredible Enduring and how brilliant a design like this is that it can have maintained this level of exposure, as we saw, from many different sizes and many different forms. So I'd like to thank Antonia very much again and all of you for coming along.
2: But I just thank the BAFTA colleagues for their enthusiasm for laying this on for this splendid setting. I, I heard they just this was taken out of storage or whatever to animate the scene today and it's great. And I'm really happy that this thing endures, that it's the logo of the organization now and is so important because the little thing has become a big thing. Every time I look with joy at an actor, female or male, holding the thing and gleaming, like I saw one of Mark Rylance in The Guardian the other day, or Phoebe Waller-Bridge, joy of receiving this, how important it is, the approbation of the, the colleagues, is just great. And I'm thrilled to have an association with this. So thank you so much.